This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and a big thank you goes out to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through till 11 o'clock. You're stuck with us now for some science. Good morning, Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Sorry about that. Uh, you try to teach them not to touch the microphones, but... You know, he's an engineer. He can't help himself. You have to, it's an you can't help but turn it you and want to it? Yeah, no, no. That was a sound I don't think I've heard before. Uh, now, let me introduce the crew. Things have already started. Uh, Dr. Catherine, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Are you having fun? You've got a new computer there, but the battery's crap. Yeah, a good piece of, a new little toy that I'm upset about the battery, so I've been complaining about it all morning. Yeah, take it back. And, uh... Uh, your doctor Jenny, is it? Uh, I can't really remember. Who am I again? <laughs> You've been away for a while. <laughs> I have. Hi, Dr. Shane. Thanks Good to for have you me back. back. Oh, it's great to have you back. You've been, for those of you who uh, haven't noticed that she's been gone, which hopefully is no one. <laughs> um, which, in fact, is everyone. Dr. Jen has been up north counting ruse and trying to run some rural school out in the middle of nowhere in a tent with her two kids. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully they haven't fallen too far behind. Maybe they've gone ahead. I don't know. They're, they've actually gone ahead. They've done well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Lots of attention. Yeah. Very good. Actually, Dr. Shane, I have to say my favorite part of all the postings that Dr. Jen and and, and Dr. Ewan did on that was the day they explained they explained their day and like the vegetation surveys and what their day involved of all the different ways they sampled it. It was just amazing. Uh, I, I was like, oh my gosh, that's what they do every day? Yeah. I don't have time to do anything else. That sounds exhausting and really exciting. But. I, I love it when everyone says, so did you have a good holiday? And my response is, um, it really wasn't a holiday. But yeah, we had a great time. Thanks. Mm, mm, yeah, no, it didn't look much like a holiday. No. I mean, not, there was no, you know, spa bars or anything. Anyway, look, we better get into some, um, science. Uh, one thing I should say, folks, is that if you're, um, interested in Mars at all, a little bit later in the show, we might have some Buzz Aldrin tickets Mike. to give out again. So you don't want to get people too excited. But uh, it, will be, it will be like it was a few weeks ago, and there will be a quiz. And if you get the <laughs> questions wrong, I am going to be bloody ruthless today. Um, so start reading about Mars right now. I mean, not that you no, should. No, listen to the us. Breaks, yes, during the yes, breaks. Yes, Dr. Shane, it's a great opportunity. <laughs> yeah, so look, we'll um, see if it's the... Um, we're only one week away from Buzz coming to Melbourne, which is pretty exciting. And um, I'm excited. I'm very excited. I'll be there. And um, anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a few moments. So, Dr. Catherine, we might start with you with some science news. What have you got for us? Thank you, Dr. Shane. I have some great news for all of the coffee drinkers out there. Um, some news that combines two of my great loves, coffee and research. Uh, <laughs> this was some research that came out, published in the journal Jeez, I thought Circulation. you were going to say something else for a second there. I got worried. <laughs> We're in a G time slot. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Copy this and research. Was, Let's go with that. Yeah, that's right. This was research published in the journal Circulation this week, and it was done by some researchers at Harvard, and they were looking at the association between drinking coffee and health outcomes, specifically looking at premature death and death due to any type of uh, any cause or disease-specific causes. And we have had previous research in the past showing some of the beneficial associations between drinking coffee and health outcomes. But this study is unique and it's a very large study. It's a sample of over 200,000 people involved. Wow. 
and it's combining three big studies and, and sort of some preliminary findings that have come out so far. So what they did in this study is they included people about 30 years ago and asked the uh, participants at that stage, this is over 200,000 people, what their lifestyle behaviours were, what their regular diet and, and drinks, etc., were, and then they've followed these people for 30-plus years. Mm. And the results are fascinating. What we've found is they've grouped people into three categories, those who didn't drink any coffee, those who drank one to five cups of coffee a day, and those who were considered heavy coffee drinkers and drinking more than five cups a day. And, and, they're, and they're still alive, those ones? Did they make it through the 30 years? <laughs> well, that, that's a good question. Oh, Ten cups a day, I think. Ooh. <laughs> It is, it's certainly a lot of coffee. Yeah, it's but a lot of coffee. The, the unique finding in this study was it was actually the moderate coffee drinkers, so those that were drinking one to five cups a day that had a lower risk of death than the people who weren't drinking coffee at all. Hmm. And death due to any cause, and also death due to specific diseases such as cardiovascular disease, uh, neurological diseases, and suicide. And, and it's not something, you know, it's not that people were putting something with the coffee or having something with the coffee or having more time off. How do they disentangle those activities from the coffee itself? It sounds, it sounds difficult to it, do that. It's very challenging. And the researchers did look at other things associated, things like BMI, exercise, smoking, to see the relationship between those things. But you're right, it could be the activity. It could be just the break of getting up and going to have mm. the coffee. Mm. One of the unique findings was it wasn't, it didn't matter whether it was decaffeinated coffee or caffeinated coffee coffee the finding was the same so the researchers actually speculate that it's not the caffeine in the coffee it's other compounds associated with drinking the coffee which are known to have an antioxidant effect right i don't drink coffee anymore i'm, uh, I'm in big I've, trouble uh, i've never drunk coffee well, we're screwed jen <laughs> well hang on yeah. though was this study done in the states yes so so it's it's u.s coffee Ooh. which really has no caffeine in it whatsoever anyway it's just boiled to death and bitter <laughs> so it's it's interesting that that that, that came out that way because yeah. to make it palatable you put a bunch of milk and sugar in it yeah yeah I, a well, lot I of sugar yeah I can't yeah. drink uh, U.S. coffee and I'm holding up you know it's a laser um, you know uh, not really coffee but yeah it's yeah I mean a little short uh, Italian macchiato you know if if they did the test on those I might say okay I might have one of those you know mm. once a day. Interesting. It interesting. is interesting. And we yeah. keep hearing different versions of this. You know, in six months, there'll be a coffee's bad for you story. And then six months after that, there'll be another coffee's good for you story. Absolutely. And the thing about this is it is limited. It's only an association. Mm. So it's mm. not like a trial that we've randomly asked people to drink coffee or not to drink yep. coffee and follow outcomes. It's purely a sort of an, a notice, a, an observation. Mm. Mm. Um, so we don't want everyone going out drinking coffee all of a sudden. Yep. It just means if you do drink coffee like myself, you can not be don't too stressed out. about yeah. it. That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> in moderation, folks, in moderation. Dr. Ray. Dr. Shane, um, I, I was really fascinated by this article in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology this week. And so I, I, I found not this Not your usual reading. No, it, no it's, it's not. But the, the context of it, the name of the article is actually, the title is, An Advantage of Appearing Mean or Lazy, Amplified Impressions of Competence or Warmth After Mixed Descriptions. So we're talking about whether or not someone is seen as the, the, the social qualifications they're talking about are whether or not they're seen as competent and then their degree of warmth. And the context, the article was quite fascinating, but I, I have to admit I barely understood a lot of it. But um, all credit to the editors um, that wrote the highlight, because they put it in the context of reference letters. And the idea that if you write a reference letter and you put all positive traits about a candidate, mm -hmm. we actually will interpret negative things about the things that weren't mentioned. And so particularly if you write great things about competence, we're actually likely to put in ideas 
of their warmth or whether or not they're cold or approachable as negatives, even though it wasn't written down. And and this concept is called an innuendo effect. It's a societal thing. It's not a lewd innuendo. But the idea here is that actually if you write a reference letter and say people are competent and then put mixed comments about their warmth, they'll actually be perceived as a better candidate than someone where if you just say they're fantastic, their competence (laughs) is fantastic. And uh, this just blew my mind. I'm like, oh, my gosh, whenever I I realize that I'm doing that, when I read a reference letter, I'm like, oh, well, they're great socially, but I wonder how they are, you know, on, on other aspects as well. I mean, maybe are, are they cold or how motivated or, her, or how approachable are they? And and I just went, oh, my gosh, everybody must do this. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now this study was interesting because normally in, in psychological studies like this, they give people to respond to two people and they do a comparison between mm-hmm. two. But they did mm-hmm. it as, as one person and then gave in a bunch of different tests, gave them different ways to evaluate it. And you can't fiddle with people's competencies that much. If you, you 80% of your letter says they're great comp- hey, great scientifically or they're competent, people will buy that. But how they extrapolate whether or not they're warmth or whether or not they're mean or lazy is really odd. That mm. By putting in comments where you go, oh, actually, being a little bit more frank and saying, oh, well, they have this strength and this little weakness, intermingling those things amplifies a positive outcome. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so then they, they, they tried to avoid doing going to stereotypes because they're – their study didn't the, the one there were a couple in there but the one uh, if an old person is seen as sharp um they're thought of as cold whereas if they're affable they might not be thought as quite as competent is kind of a stereotype way that you might explore it and they really tried to steer clear of those types of things but uh i just went oh my gosh this is why psychologists can screw with people they understand <laughs> things about how we interact and the way our, our we we fill in the blanks about our interactions and evaluations of people. Yeah. And, and reference letters was just one example where this matters. Once you get to know someone, this, these types of in, innuendo tend to drop off. But, but at the beginning, when you're just getting to know people, being self-conscious of this, I went, oh, my gosh. It, it's quite fascinating because I, I know whenever I've done a riff check on someone, yeah. uh, I'm not interested in what the person says. I'm interested in the pause before they answer. Would you employ yeah. them again? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, is, it is that subtle, we, we can't get it out of us, you know, we can't hide yeah. it. And uh, you're right, the psychologists are really good at finding this stuff in us. So. Yeah. Mm. Dr. Jen, you've had six months to prepare this story. What have you got for us? <laughs> yeah, no pressure, guys. Okay, so imagine this, that you're a, you're a PhD student doing field work in the Amazon in Bolivia and your husband's working there as well and you guys decide it's time to start a family and you fall pregnant almost immediately the second you start trying and being the good scientist that you are, you wonder if it could be because of the parasite infection that you've acquired while you've been in Bolivia. All right. So that joke of it's in the water? Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> and actually this, true. This research is is the basis of um, a paper that came out in Science this week. So there's a group of researchers working with an Indigenous... Uh, gr- uh, community in, in Bolivia and they've been following 986 women living in a pretty traditional community so they're hunting, they're fishing, they're farming crops and they had nine years of data about their um, child bearing basically. Mm. If you live in this community and you don't have any sort of parasites or any sort of um, worms infecting your, your intestine on average you have 10 children during your lifetime but 70% of the women have worms infecting their parasites and and, you know, generally we assume that parasites either have no effect on our health or have a negative effect on our health. But when they actually went into their data set and looked, it turned out that 
If you have a hookworm infection, then yes, there are negative effects. So the women were having their first child later and there were much longer gaps between their children. And on average, they were only having seven kids rather than the ten kids. But the women who were infected with these giant roundworms, which sound a bit scary because they get to 36 centimetres long, oh, wow. which is, you know, so they're, they're yeah, in the yeah. gut and they're basically stealing some of the food the from food. your small yep. intestine as opposed to <clears throat> hookworms, which are getting nutrition from your blood. But these women were actually having their first child earlier and were having smaller gaps between their children. Mm. And instead of on average having 10 children, they were having 12 children. So something's going on. These intestines are somehow mediating the immune system to make it more likely that you are falling pregnant. Now, we know when you're pregnant that your immune system has to have an anti-inflammatory response, basically so your body doesn't reject the fetus. And it seems like these roundworms are doing the same thing and they may well have evolved to do that to kind of avoid detection by the immune system. They're kind of mimicking being Mm. a fetus. But it means that for these women who are infected by these roundworms, their immune system has been changed so that they're actually conceiving more easily. So, of course, now there's all this work to look at the immune system and look at the cells and the molecules and what's changing. And, of course, everyone's immediately saying, is there a new fertility treatment, you know, in this science? But I just love the fact she's like, oh, maybe my parasites meant I felt pregnant really easily. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you should be able to buy them. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's a big effect, seven versus ten versus 12 kids no, across a, a lifetime. That, that's a massive effect. Yeah, We're not yeah. talking tiny percentage yeah, yeah. change. Yeah, yeah. But, so. but a 36 centimetre roundworm is not exactly falls into the easy to tackle fertility <laughs> treatment. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a bit disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, even us guys can appreciate that that's disgusting and we wouldn't... Well, but you don't even know they're there. None of the women in, this, in these communities knew they were infected by did, these wow. things. They don't, they don't know they're there. Did, did they track anything about infant mortality based on the health of the mother in terms of whether or not they were infected? It wasn't by reported in this paper, but it'd be good to know. Mm. All right, folks. Uh, here's something interesting that's coming up. Um, one of our very, very uh, long-term listeners. Um, uh, Peter Aylward has sent me some information about the Space Association of Australia's upcoming monthly meeting. Um, they have a guest speaker, and people can come along to this particular one if they like. Um, they have, their guest speaker coming up is Mark Smith from the Melbourne Nano Satellite Revolution uh, U Meetup Group, and they're presenting... Um, uh, something called Nanosat Eye in the Sky, um, which is the idea of building a CubeSat here in Melbourne. And, um, the, you know, this whole thing about small satellites, you know, these really small, small, they're, you know, just not giant satellites, but these little ones that do all these things. I mean, this is the way these things are going, so that each launch of a rocket can take up, you know, tons of these things as opposed to, you know, a space shuttle dropping off one big satellite. Um Anyway, people can can come along. Um, if they go and have a look at the Space Association of Australia website, they will see um, all the details. And um, it is, uh, I will look them up for you. It's at the Caulfield RSL in the function room, which is on the fourth floor. And um, it's uh, Monday, 7 to 10 p.m. So... Uh, yeah, get over there, have a look. Um, really cool stuff. These guys are, it's really interesting actually, and they're, they're also going to be doing a bit of a retrospective on this, um, manned orbiting laboratory. This was one of the secrets of the military plans of the US, um, years ago that never actually occurred because <laughs> they, they went with this, other things. Um, but it's, it's really, really cool. So anyway, it's, um, tomorrow night, 7 till 10 p.m. Um, it's free, you, you know. Just come along at the Caulfield RSL in the function room on the first floor. Um, pretty cool. Anyway, cool stuff. Uh, P. 
Peter's been instrumental in getting us many of the free passes that we have been <laughs> wow. able to give away from Buzz Aldrin. So big thank you to that, Peter. I know some of our listeners have been very excited about that, and we'll, we'll be talking about that later in the show. We're going to take a music break, and we'll be back in a moment talking to someone uh, about cartography, which is a cool. topic I don't think we've covered on the show before. So it's about time after so many years. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 to Blah. Back in a moment. Three. Triple. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We are going to attempt something funky now. We're working on a Skype call with Washington. We're just going to see if John Hessler is there. John, can you hear us? I can hear you, certainly. It's great to talk to you. We're, we're getting just a little bit of um, uh, our own voices coming back here, so I'm not sure if you can turn your speaker down a tad in the background. I will turn you down. All right. That seems a lot better. Thank you. Now, John, you're the curator at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and you're also a lecturer at the Graduate School of Advanced Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Um, thanks so much for chatting to us today, and we're, we're very interested to hear um, from a cartographer because this isn't something that we um, normally talk about that much on the show, although we should. I'd like to start with just um, your reflections on how cartography has changed over the last sort of 20 or 30 years. Um, it, it seems as though for some people maps are becoming a bit of a lost art. Well, it's uh, right now it's kind of going through its golden age, actually. Um, we, of course, are moving uh, away from printed maps. Um, the old maps that you would have in your glove compartment and things like that are certainly... Um, becoming more and more obsolete with the uh, advent of GPS and in every vehicle and on mm. every cell phone, people can track where they are. Um, so although maps are disappearing, um, the ability to locate yourself and the sort of obsession that people have with locating themselves seems to be alive and well. Um, but with that, um, cartography has changed a great deal. Uh, the art of cartography, because one has so much access to data, um, there's a lot more cartographers out there working simply because so many computer programs are available online that the sort of design possibilities of cartography have kind of exploded. Um, and with that, also what cartographers are mapping. Um, maps used to be just of sort of static places. Um, um, almost by the time they were surveyed and printed, they were kind of obsolete. Um, but now cartographers are looking more towards big data, looking at how humans move in space, uh, more dynamic maps, time-oriented maps. Um, and so cartography really is in, in, in a golden age right now. Hmm. It would seem that the, um, the, the sort of sheer amount of information in the average map, and, and I'm talking about sort of an electronic map now, is very different to what you would use before in terms of overlays as, as well. I mean, I, I saw a great slide at a talk recently where someone had pulled apart a sort of average Google map or, you know, one of those types of electronic maps and there were literally about 15 different layers of data that had been you know, compressed down onto this single scenario. Is, it, is that becoming the norm now for so many of these maps just to have you know, multiple data sets overlaid on top of them? Yeah, it certainly is. The GIS, the, the advent of geographic information science and geographic information systems, which is really the computer technology that was developed in the 1960s and 70s that kind of allows that sort of cartography to occur, um, really is the norm. Um, there are cartographers in, in every urban planning office, in, in every uh, government office, at least in the U.S. and I'm sure in Australia and around the world, 
um, who are using those kind of maps for, for planning and, and city development. Um, the power of those kind of overlays allows you to look at, you know, multiple things, uh, multiple ways that humans move in space all at one time. And that really is the, the whole point of cartography in a way. It really is to abstract from the complexities um, of our everyday life and to, to put them into a two-dimensional and, and more understandable form. Um, and that abstraction, that, that way that, uh, that cartography simplifies and allows us to analyze is, is really one of the, the major um, roles that it has today and, and really its central power, its, its staying power. Um, this is Ray here. Uh, I, I have a, we have a colleagues in our infrastructure engineering and we actually have a GIS discipline within it. Um, one of the, I was talking to a, a civil engineer who worked in planning and he was exceptionally excited about the fact that they were starting to look at planning data in three dimensions instead of two and the implications for how that could transform planning an urban environment was amazing because there was so much perception of everything being two-dimensional that by actually simply looking at a third dimension, it really changed their perceptions of every aspect of the planning process, and this is just for office buildings. So you'd said two-dimensional. Could you comment on the ideas of three-dimensional representations and virtual reality and the ability to how technology has changed the visualization of those things, and does, does it really have that big of an impact in, in how people see cartography? Well, I think it does because it, it really has, um, to a certain extent, it's blurred the line. Um, cartography used to be a kind of a, a very simple discipline. I mean, in the for most of its history, from the beginnings of cartography during Ptolemy and the, and the Greeks and through the Romans and and through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and way into the 18th and 19th century, um, basically you went out and surveyed with chains or, or little telescopes and you drew maps and then you printed them. Um, but now, with the advent of computers, um, the ability to, to visualize much more complex data is really changing the real face of what cartography is. And we're not only going into the third dimension at this point, the third spatial dimension um, projected on a computer or that virtual reality um, form where you actually have that kind of false th third dimension as you're looking through a virtual reality viewer, um, we're also adding time, so we're also going into the fourth dimension, and, and that really um, has kind of changed things because we're beginning to look at um, non-equilibrium phenomena, and in other words, not things that are static in time and, and things that are moving. And so you're really getting this, this blurring um, of what cartography is. The, the difference between cartography and computer simulation and big data um, really is kind of collapsing at, at this point. Um, anything that humans do, um, planning, anything we do in our lives, anything we do in our governments, and anything we do um, in, in our minds is always done in space. Uh, and so um, looking at that space and, and, and actually being able to visualize that space in ways that it can be analyzed is opening up a whole new ways of, of, of looking at the way um, humans interact with one another and how we interact with our environment. Mm. Now, John, you um, have recently released, uh, as of October, um, through Faden Press, a new book that you've had a major contribution in called Map. Now, is the the title there? Is it the noun or the or the verb? Um, <laughs> it, it, it's a great it's a great title. I mean, I, I'm sure people well, hopefully people will know what's in it. But um, for those who don't, um, give us a bit of a rundown of what this book is about. It sounds fascinating. Well, I guess the map and verb. I, I think you could go both ways there. Um, I think uh, the, the way the book was conceived really 
Um, it's not one of those books that kind of takes the hundred greatest maps that have ever been produced um, or the best maps or the most important historic maps. Um, we took a little different tact on this book. We, we selected um, with a group of us um, some cartographers, collectors, um, um, scholars, uh, selected a group of 300 maps. And those were from all time periods and uh, even up until the 20th century. And what we did with those maps is instead of putting them in some sort of thematic order, um, we took them and we put them on facing pages. And, and the whole game here, the whole point of the book is for the, the viewer to kind of look at those the maps on each side of the page and kind of try and decide um, why did we decide to put them on facing pages. <laughs> and, and what that does is it kind of drives the the person who's reading the book into the mind of the cartographer. Okay, why is this line like this on this map and different on this map? Um, what are they trying to say here? And, and that really pushes the person who's looking into the book to consider um, a dimension of cartography that's seldom talked about, which is, is, is a different fourth dimension of cartography. But that's the, the dimension that's going on inside the mind of the cartographer, his or herself. Um, why is it that they made these decisions? What are they trying to say to us with, with these maps? Um, and so the, the book um, really kind of takes that stand. It, it kind of questions the definition of what a map is, whether that be a verb or whether that be a noun. Um, there are maps by artists. Um, there are maps by great cartographers. Um, and there are digital maps, maps of Facebook friends. Um, the, perhaps the map in the book that... that engendered the most discussion among the editors and the people who are involved in the project was the map of the human brain, um, the connectome map. Um, is that an actual map or isn't it? So we were constantly questioning um, the definition of a map and kind of pushing the definition in the book. Hmm. Look, it sounds fascinating. I, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm still a bit of a map guy. Uh, I, I do have some printed out maps sitting on the seat of my car. And, I love maps. And, and I don't completely trust my GPS. And that's not because I don't trust technology. It's because it's failed me on a few times. So that, well, that, that's it, it, like every technology. One has to be careful. Yeah. And I think the the great thing about maps, though, is, uh, and, you know, maybe this is just a scientist talking, but they allow you to get that sort of broader visual of where you're going where you've been and so forth and all of that information is available through through maps whereas um the gps system gives you your you know your relatively close location and stuff around you but it doesn't give you that that broader scenario unless you zoom in now i understand john that you're a a big uh, mountaineer and adventurer i'm curious do you take uh do you take a gps system or an actual printed map or do you do your own no map? I, t- I take an actual printed map there you um, go <laughs> you know uh, when you get out into the sort of mountainous areas, and you certainly can trust the GPS. And, and and the one thing about a map is if you drop it on the ground, you can pick up and still use it. But if you drop your cell phone and it hits a rock, <laughs> it's kind of over at that point. So so uh, there there is a certain durability to a paper map. Um, you often wonder at the Library of Congress where, you know, it's, we have the largest map collection in the world, about five and a half to six million maps. We're not exactly sure how many um, are really there. 
Um, they, you know, there are maps from you know the Middle Ages which are in perfect condition, and, and mm. uh, you know you don't really know what your GPS receiver is going to look like in 400 years. It's probably not going to be working very well. Yeah, and then the written maps, the batteries don't go flat. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, John, look, good good luck with the book, and thanks so much for chatting to us today. And I, I, I suppose um, we should recommend everyone go out and have a look at this book. It's called Map. Um, the the press is Faden Press, and um, John Hessler, who we've been been speaking to has been a major contributor and has written the forward um, for this particular book. John, thanks so much for chatting to us. Um, keep up the interesting work there and it's great to hear that cartography is um, surviving and getting stronger and moving into all these new realms of, um, of the digital world. So um, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That was John Hessler, a modern cartographer and specialist in geographic information science and curator at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and, of course, is also a lecturer in uh, the Graduate School of Advanced Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We're going to take a break now for um, some music, and we'll be back in a moment with another guest in the studio talking all about soil. Not dirt, soil. I think I'm going to ask if there's a difference. I'm sure she will know all about it. I think you probably, I'm sure if you actually call a soil scientist a dirt scientist, they're insulted. We'll check that out in just a moment, folks. Hang in there. Three. Triple. Ah. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. We're having a good day. The Skype interview worked, which is always a risky business when you're trying to call Washington. We have a live guest in the studio, though. Dr. Samantha Grover is a postdoctoral fellow in the Soil-Plant Interaction Group in the Department of Animal, Plant and Soil Science at La Trobe University. Welcome, Sam. Hi. It's quite, a, quite a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> is that the first time you've heard it read out? Yeah, probably. Can we call you a dirt scientist, or is there a difference between soil and dirt? You've got to Well, that's the dirt, you know, you has that, a certain yeah? ring to it. Um, but I guess I think the general idea is that dirt is something you don't want, right? Dirt, <laughs> dirt is matter out of place, whereas is soil right? is a really oh, valuable resource. You're right, actually. There is a different connotation with the two terms. Mm. Well, let's talk about soil, because uh, people might tune out <laughs> otherwise. Now, your interest in particular is around this the organic matter and other stuff in soil. Tell us a bit about that. I mean, what are we talking about there? Just, you know, bits of garbage that have floated down and gone in, old plants. That, I mean, what, what do we mean by organic matter? What sort of things uh, do we uh, add Essentially up? old plants, yeah. And I guess my first uh, introduction to soil was through peat, which is a very unusual kind of soil in Australia. But if you're a fan of good quality whiskey you'd be familiar mm. with peat because mm. some kinds of peat um, are used to filter whiskey from certain parts of scotland and ireland and what's peat and peat is an organic soil okay so that's just the dead plant material gradually 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 break, breaking down yep. but the soil that you'd be more familiar with in your garden and in most of australia it's mostly broken down rocks with little bits of broken down plants oh. and i mustn't forget to mention the soil biologist will be very upset if I forget to mention a small amount, but very important as the living component, the microbes and the insects. Because I've got, I bought this Venus flytrap. There's all this stuff on mm. the back. It talks about mm. peat. Bloody things dying at the rate of knots. I have to tell you, I'm doing something wrong. It amazes me that the environment at the hardware store seemed better than the environment of my, at your my house. home. How could that be? I don't know. There's What's more going insects on? at the hardware store. Is that right? Maybe. I don't know. I don't but know. we have one of those as well, and it's in 
peat. Yeah, it's in peat. It's not, yeah, yeah. It's not peat soil. It has yeah. a really high, well, it's a kind of soil. It's kind of soil. Peat has a really high water holding capacity. Mm. Um, and so it's used a lot in the horticultural industry for orchids and Mm. So now, now let's. I mean, you, you've been getting around a lot in terms of looking at some of this stuff, and and one of the things we were chatting about just briefly before you came in was the the amount of organic matter you find in different soils. Uh, a lot of people would think it's relatively the same regardless of where you dig, but there is massive differences apparently between this. Tell us about that. There are there are massive differences, and I guess I've been lucky enough to work, you know kind of at the two extremes so peat as i said we don't have much of it in australia but we have Mm -hmm. little bits um up in the mountains and that's maybe not 100 but maybe 80 or 90 percent organic matter whereas most of the soil and particularly the soil that's used agriculturally in australia might be more like one percent right organic matter Um, it it, it seems like a very small amount Um, it's a very small amount but it's so important okay and um you might have well you might have heard a little bit of talk from the kind of Canberra region about storing carbon in the soil. Yep. and Not from Canberra, but we've heard about carbon from other, <laughs> other parts of the world. Yeah. So, so let, let's talk about that, the, the carbon storage in the soil, because I can imagine there's a difference between 1% and 80%, obviously, is um, 79% different. Um, <laughs> but but we're, talking about, we're talking about actually storing an extremely large load of carbon just, just in the soil, right? Yeah, and and I guess um, when you think about, as you say, there's a big difference between 80% and mm. 1%, but peat soils are um, not extensive, so you might have a lot of um, carbon in a small area, whereas right. we have a lot of area of these lower carbon soils, but our management practices can change that from mm. 1% to 2 Mm, right. or maybe yeah. only one yep. and a half but over such a big area as australia that's that still adds up to a lot yeah so and we're ta- and, and so there's there's the obviously the storage getting it in there but then there's also the release yeah. I mean, what causes release of carbon compounds from these soils essentially microbes do all the work mm-hmm. so the plants die and plant litter is added to the surface of the soil and then microbes in the soil consume it as a source yep. of energy and they release some of it back to the atmosphere but they process some of it and, and it gets stored in the soil mm-hmm. and i guess that's what my current research is um looking into those processes in the western australian wheat belts so this is a that's amazing what they can do in western australia mm. they have sand they're just really working with sand and right. yet they grow an enormous amount of wheat you've probably had toast or um perhaps some delicious cake from the tea room this morning yeah, yeah. That was, was gluten-free, so no yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, Maybe some barley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and they grow this in sand. So the, these, this would be a the sort of 1% end of the extreme in exactly, terms of organic... Exactly. It's not completely sand, but it's very low organic matter soil. Yeah. So I always have this image of the organic matter as essentially the fuel for the plant. Is, is, is that right or is it something else? The fuel for the plants. That's an interesting way to look at it because certainly organic matter is a source of nutrients mm-hmm. and it binds nutrients... But it's just, you know, an old bit of plant isn't food for a new growing plant. plant. You need the microbes to break it down and change its composition so that it's accessible for plant roots to take up. Because they need much simpler compounds, as Mm. you can imagine, to get in through their roots. Mm. They need simpler compounds. So so when they're looking at locations to to grow this stuff, say in WA, do do they make these measurements, the the sort of things you're doing of of what that organic percentage is in in the sand, sand, as it will, probably being a bit rude to Western Australians there. But, uh, I mean, as you say, it's it's 
not overly rich in organic compounds. So no, but I guess what it, there's a proxy. Um, mm. So when you're going in to clear native vegetation and choose new area to to grow food, which you know humans have been doing for a long time all over the globe, you look at the native vegetation that's there, and if you've got you know big trees and yep. nice grasses you're going to have better soil and so that's a better place to start if you want to grow your your crops hmm. whereas the areas where it's pretty sparse hmm. and presumably you probably leave that for the farmers who are coming next yeah right <laughs> <laughs> presumably when we clear land and yep. we you know turn the soil and we we go through this process time year in year out same crop over and over and over again what happens to the organic sort of percentages in the soil as a result of that process look I guess to give a heart, I, like I'm a scientist, right? So I can't say mm. this will always happen. Mm. But um, on average, generally, if you do that kind of um, agricultural production, you'll use up the stores right. of carbon in the soil and right. you'll have a gradually decreasing um, amount of carbon in the soil. That's not to say that there aren't some systems where you can um, you know, have an actively managed agricultural yep. system that can build up carbon in the soil mm-hmm. and that can... Um, lead to higher stocks of carbon in the soil than under the native vegetation. Um, And I guess what our research at the moment is looking at is how we can use our current agricultural management practices that they're using in this part of WA, so adding lime to the soil to make it less acid and better for the plants to grow, but also adding clay to the sand Mm -hmm, to make it a mm -hmm. better texture. Um, How can we build up the carbon in the soil or or Mm. keep the carbon that's there there rather than having it... So if, if there's a message for Australia overall, just to finish up, um, wh- what do we need to be doing in terms of, you know, storing more carbon in our soil, preventing it from getting out of the soil and, you know, minimising the impact that our agricultural processes and, and, you know, land use in general has on the environment? I think we need to, to just be, to value the soil and to recognise mm-hmm. its importance as a resource and, um, yeah, 2015 is the International Year of Soil. Is that right? That, I can't believe no one said that on this show, and it's November. <laughs> I think, the, you know, the problem is that there's a, a lot of people come in and say it's the year of something, and I'm not sure whether you, where you register these things, but there's a few years of. There's, so there's two at a time. Two at a time. This year. So, yep. the, so you, the UN decides right. it's going to be the International Year of blah, blah, blah. And uh, last soil. year they decided that this year was going to be soil. It's actually soil, and we're sharing with... Light. Oh yeah, I remember you lights because we've done we've done yeah. stuff about light. Yeah. But even though soil was well, the I'm other really one. Well, I'm really glad that you that I've come in at this time because yeah. obviously it's the International Year of Soil, so there's been lots of mm. different things going on all year. But the fifth of December is also World Soils Day. So at Fed Square in Melbourne, we're going to have some soil, lots of soil, <laughs> <laughs> and all sorts of um, fun activities and um, you know kids kids art classes. I've written a children's book about soil yes. for this year which i'm going to be reading to children at different art classes in art play behind Fed and Square. i've read it and it's awesome <laughs> all cool. kids need to read about it no, there's going to be cool. a giant map of victoria and you can bring the soil from your favorite place or your garden and put it on the map is that it's right like soil art we're collaborating Jeez. with artists soil i love artists. that because you get a lot of people are going to be very proud so they're going to look in their backyard they're going to get the best soil which they which they <laughs> yeah. bought probably came which from they a... bought two weeks yeah earlier yeah. from somewhere <laughs> up near the murray yeah. and, and you guys will be trying to sort this soil out it's fantastic look yeah. that's that sounds really interesting and you know a big whack to the international year of light people for not telling us it was also soil when they <laughs> came on you're very polite to give you know give some, Got it, some you know love you're back. Share and but um that's great so that's december 6th or 5th 
to you? The f- the fifth. The fifth. So, All right. Well, people can look it up. I, I assume the fifth square the fifth and information. Sixth. Yeah, yeah. Square. And before we say goodbye, we should point out that Sam is one of the women who is going on the Homeward Bound expedition oh, yeah. that we talked about last week. Yeah, lots of soil down in Antarctica. Well, you've got to dig to get to it. Known to be a lot of soil, but. There's some peat. There's some mosses, There's right? There's mosses, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, I'm going on this amazing leadership and strategy training expedition with 78 women scientists from around the world, and I'm also hoping to get my hands on some Antarctic peat. Mm, not sure if you're allowed to steal stuff from Antarctic, but, you know, oh, what, no. we'll go what, ends the proper up, uh, what ends up on your boots, you know, what can you do? I, I don't think you can take a penguin back. Uh, <laughs> but if they happen please? to jump into your bag, you don't know. <laughs> Dr. Samantha Grover, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It's, uh, it's been really great to hear about soil and the difference from soil and dirt. Mm. And uh, good luck with the research and hope the um, December function at FedSquare goes well. Thanks so much. Thank you. Dr. Samantha Grover is a postdoctoral fellow in the Soil Plant Interaction Group in the Department of Animal Plant and Soil Science at La Trobe University. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we are going to have a little quiz. Um, and don't ring just yet. I'll tell you when, um, because we have two double passes to hand out to uh, the Buzz Aldrin uh, night that is on next Sunday, an evening with Buzz Aldrin, Mission to Mars, hosted by Ray Martin, and you'll learn all about uh, Buzz's early history. You know, as a fighter pilot in the Korean War. Um, you know, he's Gemini. I got it right, Ray. Gemini. Yeah. It's pronounced Gemini. Uh, Twelve mission, and of course Gemini. But keep going. No, it's <laughs> pronounced Gemini. Actually, you can you can look that up, and uh, that's is the correct like pronunciation. Is this like a tomato and tomato? Like you apparently know, not. The Americans still no, say Gemini. I, but I, I actually looked it up, and the American announcers who announced all those missions pronounced it Gemini. So that was the in-house pronunciation. So interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I was surprised. Uh, and of course, uh, he may have walked on the moon. Yeah, you know, um, him and Neil Armstrong, of course, the first two humans to land on the moon. So we'll have those double passes uh, coming up in just a moment. For now, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with instructions on how to get them. So hang in there. Three, triple, is Einstein and Go-Go time. You're listening to 3 R. The tracks we played today, the one you just heard was by the May Trio called She Loves Me. Before that was Hugh McGinley with The Ambassador. And the first track was by Elise Platt called Broken. Now, we do have a bit of a competition on our hands. Um, I've got some questions that you have to get right in order to win one of two double passes to Buzz Aldrin's show, which is on next uh, sun or this coming Sunday um, at the Melbourne Town Hall. The show starts at 8 o'clock, and people will be able to pick up these tickets from 6.30. And these are all thanks to the team from uh, Live On Stage Australia, who have been so kind to... Uh, they gave us a few tickets a few weeks back and have offered some more up again, which is fantastic. So a big uh, thank you to those guys for putting these up there uh, for our team. Phil and Ricky have been really kind. Dr. Ray? Uh, Dr. Shane, is, do you know if it's, is it a sold-out show? If yeah, look, there might be a few seats left, but I think it's all okay. but sold out. Melbourne Town Hall is not the biggest venue in town, of course. It's pretty big, but it's not, you know, it's not uh, Rod Labor. Um, and I think you know this is a pretty once-in-a-lifetime chance to go yeah. there and see Buzz Aldrin speak. So if you would like to win one of these double passes, call us now at 3 R. You need to be a subscriber. And we have a quiz uh, now we have already someone on the line. I think let me just check if I can get this working. We should have Nick on line one. Nick, are you there? Good 
Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Now, Nick, I need you to name for me the closest four planets to the sun if you would like a pair of Buzz Aldrin tickets. That would be Mercury, Venus, the Earth, and Mars. Well done, Nick. You've won yourself two tickets, mate. Now, you hang on the line, and uh, Liv is going to uh, get to you in a minute. So you just hang in there, and we will get back to you. We also uh, are going to go to another caller now. We have uh, Paul, I think, there on the line. Paul, can you hear us? Ken. Paul, I've got to ask you a question in order to give you a pair of tickets to go and see uh, Buzz Aldrin next week. And me, I'll be there as well, which is pretty exciting. Uh, although I'll just be in the crowd. <laughs> I won't be on the stage. Uh, what is the second smallest planet in the solar system? Second smallest planet. So we're not talking about planets that were recently planets and no longer planets? That's exactly right. We're just leaving Pluto right out of this discussion. Pluto's out. Um, okay, so... The second smallest planet, Paul. Uh... Neptune? I'm afraid not, Paul. I'm afraid not. I'm going to have to try another caller. Hello, you're speaking with uh, Shane on Einstein and Gogo. What's your name? Hello, it's Donald. Donald, I need to know what the second smallest planet in the solar system is. Okay, now I'm going to be going for either... Um, You've got to give uh, me one answer. Or... One answer, Donald. All right, all right, all right. Um, I'll go for... Uh... Mm, Venus. Venus. I'm sorry, Donald, but uh, that ah. is incorrect. Incorrect. Now, I think uh, on line four we should have Margaret. Margaret, are you there? Yes, I am. Margaret, I need to know what the second smallest planet in the solar system is. Can you answer that question for us for a couple of Buzz Aldrin tickets? I think that would be Mars. Ah, bingo. Well done, Margaret. Woohoo! Geez, you're the third one. I, I was getting worried there. We were starting to eliminate all the planets there. We were <laughs> down the last two. Margaret, I need you to hold on the line for us, and uh, we will get back to you in just a moment, and we'll get your details for, for those tickets. Congratulations. I, I, Thanks so much. No problem at all. It's a double pass, so uh, I think it will, I'm hoping it's going to be awesome because I'm going to be there, and I'm pretty excited about it, but I'm a bit of a, a space junkie, so, you know, I'm not sure oh, everyone's going to be there. So that, well, that sounds great. I'm glad it's going to another space junkie there we go all right you hang on the line and, and live will get back to you in in just a moment all right so there we go so that was pretty easy yeah that was oh, yeah. That's exciting it's very exciting now i wanted to tell you guys something uh just before we go because jen we're going to get you to hold off on talking about your amazing big trip because um because you don't get too jealous uh, sure yeah we'd be too jealous <laughs> now i think um i think by the way we, we may have lost margaret off the line there so margaret if you are listening um ring live back and um she will sort you out i think i just noticed the phone dropped out there so margaret may have accidentally hung up um but i wanted to tell you about this um stone age pottery stuff i'm not sure if you've um seen this but um you know there's all this stuff about when honeybees were being used and uh, recently there's been this study that's looked um in particular beeswax contains all these complex fats and these are actually quite uh, recognizable as sort of residues on old potteries and there's been this study that's gone around and looked at stuff in in europe um the near east north africa and so forth and and Previously, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of 4,000-year-old stuff where, um, you know, honeybees actually painted on these things. So we figured, you know, people were probably collecting honeybees for the honey and there was some sort of bee husbandry, I love that term, um, back, you know, 4,000 years ago. But what um, has been found as a result of this study, and it was... Um, 
published in journal uh, Nature just a couple of weeks ago by Melanie Roffitt's Cell Q et al., um, is that they've found this residue of these complex facts, um, fats on some older pottery in these various parts of the world, all around the world, um, dating back some 9,000 years. Mm. So we've actually been hanging around using bees for a lot longer than most of us, I think, would have imagined. That's what was the previous estimate. It was way 4, 000, recent, yeah. wasn't well, it? Well, yeah. And it was, the thing was, it was, it was estimated based on when bees were first depicted yep. as bees mm. on on objects that we found. Mm. So this is different. This is actually finding those particular compounds, those residues mm. that are involved in keeping bees and keeping the product of bees um you know, on, on, on particular pieces of pottery that uh, are in museums and so forth. So it's just fascinating that you can sort of look back that far and see this sort of stuff. So it's very, very cool. Um, well, there you go. Those waxes, I mean, the, the carbon chain length is very specific. It's amazing it? that because bees make that. Mm, mm. Um, Only bees? Well, no, no, but no particularly. Yeah. No, no, I mean, but, but some of those acids and things. Just the fraction of it, too. It's not like, oh, it's a bunch of different ones. It's right. very specific chemically to the size of the molecule. It's yeah. pretty amazing that bees can do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think our association with bees is, is long-term, and it has to be long-term into the future as well. This is one of the big issues at the moment is you know, the death of so many bee colonies and so forth around the world is that without bees, you know, mm, we, we encourage them into our, our yard. Yeah, we encourage them into our yard all the time. I've taught my kids to respect the bee. Sometimes that means going inside. Remember, <laughs> hey, we got to see so many amazing little native bees because yeah. you're out in the middle of an incredibly arid area and of course you bring some water because as humans we need water and as soon as you're washing your dishes you just get swarmed with these amazing numbers of little tiny native bees all desperate for some moisture they're just beautiful mm, mm, fantastic well folks we're almost out of time so uh, i should thank the team dr Catherine. good to have you in thanks dr shane it's been a great morning and dr ray pleasure dr shane you, you tired you just got back from <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You, in fact, we, we, we had this whole thing set up where if i'd nodded off just like jeff on the wiggles jen was going to out and wake up, wake up, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. yeah, that'd be cool. And Dr. Jen, it's a fabulous thing to have you back in the studio, and we'll be seeing you again very, Thank very you. soon. I missed you guys, and you must have missed the the beautiful studios of Triple R. I actually did when I yeah. came in last Wednesday for breakfast for the first time, and I just like, oh, I'm home. Yeah, yeah I love this yeah. place. Yeah, it's a, you miss it. I, I, I know we're, we've only got a few weeks, about four weeks left for the till the end of the year, and then we take a bit of a break. And I have to say, usually I'm ready for the break, mm. but boy, do I miss the place by the time we come back in Feb. So yeah, yeah I hear you. Well, folks, uh, we have enjoyed having a chat about science with you again this week. We'll be back again next week. We have some amazing guests actually coming up over the next few weeks before the end of the year, some of the best ones for the year. Until then, remember, science is everywhere, and we will hand you over to the team from Eat It. You've been listening to Einstein the Go-Go. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.